Michael Wiley enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1957 at the age of 17 and was commissioned as a U.S. Marine Corps second lieutenant upon graduation from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1962. Colonel Wiley served two tours in Vietnam, during which he was wounded in the head and received the Purple Heart Medal. In the years following Vietnam, Colonel Wiley led a revision of U.S. Marine Corps tactics with a view toward making them fully relevant to the demands of modern war. Colonel Wiley was a principal author of the FMFM-1 Warfighting Manual, a seminal doctrinal publication that cemented the USMC's adoption of maneuver warfare under the leadership of Commandant Al Gray. Despite leading monumental reform of warfighting philosophy, Colonel Wiley was professionally snubbed for challenging the status quo within the U.S. Marine Corps. Following his retirement in 1992, Colonel Wiley founded the Bossov Ballet Theater in Maine. He has continued to actively publish in professional journals on modern war and lead intellectual efforts designed to improve the U.S. military's operational and strategic capability set. You're listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Colonel Wiley, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. It's an honor to have you on the show today. And I just want to start from the beginning. Why did you join the Marines? Well, it was a dream of mine from almost the day I was born. I have a great uncle. He was the brother of my maternal grandmother. He was killed on the 6th of June, 1918, at the Battle of Belleau Wood in France in World War One. And I grew up hearing stories about Uncle Donald, from the time I was a very little boy, Uh, then also being a 1940 baby, Mm -hmm. some of my first and earliest and most important memories are of and related to World War II. And my father went away, uh, dad started coming back about the time I'm in grade school, and there was something about the Marines that was special. And that image of charging off a landing craft on a beach caught my fancy. Uh, My dad had actually gone to boot camp. He signed up, father of three, at age 37. He went through boot camp. The drill instructor called him grandpa. (laughs) And when he finished, he he was a college grad, but his eyes were not good, so he, he couldn't become a commissioned officer, but finally they needed so many Navy officers, they made him an incident in the Navy. But all, all that said, my dad had gone to Marine boot camp, and the stories fascinated me. I wanted to be as tough. You know, you know I, I think there was another little factor in it. Uh, my mother and father were happily, happily married, and when my father was gone, when my father came back, all the time, I heard again and again and again how great my dad was. I was jealous. <laughs> I was kind of a jealous lover. I thought, wait a minute, I can do it too. I think that might have been a factor. Well, of course, I became a teenager, and it became kind of a bravado thing. Hey, I'm going to be a Marine. And, uh, you know, to impress the girls and things. I, I suppose I had a little of that. But but it, it was certainly a lifetime goal. As a young lieutenant, you worked for an iconic and innovative Marine leader, General Victor Brute Kerlak. Is there anything particularly profound that you learned from him? Absolutely. He was a mentor in many ways. I know his whole family, his middle son, was a classmate of mine at Annapolis, and his uh, younger son eventually became Commandant of the Marine Corps. His older son was a Navy chaplain. I knew all three of them. And, you know, I joined the Marines at 17, kind of a teenage showing off thing. I did get an appointment to Annapolis after that and went through the four years and graduated from there. Went out to Okinawa, did the usual things that a Marine lieutenant does being an infantry platoon leader for 13 months. We're now in the year 1963 and kind of touching into 64. And then I come back, and this is where the Krulak connection comes, besides that of knowing his sons. 
I came back. I'm a first lieutenant now. I'm assigned to the 1st Marine Division at Camp Pendleton, California. And it was a job I never would have anticipated. I became an instructor. Here I am. I'm only a 24, 25-year-old lieutenant, and I'm an instructor now in this school at Camp Pendleton called the Counter-Guerrilla Counter-Insurgency School. Now, they prepared me and the other instructors for this job. I, I took a lot of training and educating to get to where I could instruct, and we studied guerrilla warfare. We were going to go to Vietnam. So General Kulak, whose brainchild the school was, told us. And General Kulak was really the, uh, Victor the Brute, was the, the real inspiration behind that school. We were an anomaly in many ways compared to the rest of the Marine Corps. We, 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 we were different. We were preaching a different kind of war. The old majors who'd been in Korea were a little suspicious of us. Hey, this isn't the way it's going to be. But uh, General Krulak himself, uh, always a scholar, the, the consummate warrior scholar, had read up on counterinsurgency and, and this established this school that not that many Marines really went through, but it was very formative to me as a Marine officer. And partly because the way we prepared was to read everything there was to read on guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, Street Without Joy, all these books that were coming out. Um, so, so I keep the brute at the top of my list for uh, for officers who inspired me as I was coming up. You just spoke of Vietnam, where you served two tours. Your second tour was as a company commander with Delta Company 1st Battalion, 5th Marines in 1969. What did your tours in Vietnam teach you about human performance and the human condition in the most lethal of settings, combat? Well, one of the things that it taught me was how closely, and I'm going to say not just men, but Americans, how closely Americans work together when when they're in a tough situation. I, 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 it's funny, that jumped out at the top of my my list, but my Marines would do anything for each other. Also, I discovered that in combat, your young private first class and lance corporals, the young guys, the 18, 19-year-olds, they do a lot of thinking for themselves down there. There's a lot more going on in their heads than I'm going to do what I just got ordered to do. They had thoughts. I took over the company at night, and I didn't do it in the way I had been introduced to my company commander before the war, where we're all in a formation, and he's standing up there, good morning, gentlemen, I'm Captain Who is so-and-so. No, I, I went from position to position at night, and they gave me their ideas. When I whispered to them, I'm your new company commander. They, they were, and I listened to them. It was important. There's a lot that goes on in the brains of those young warriors. So, speaking of what's going on inside of the brains of young warfighters, though proud of your service in Vietnam and decorated for it, your experience and observations inspired you to bring operational reform to the USMC and larger military. Can you share what you wanted to change and why? Oh yeah. One thing I wanted to decentralize a little. What I became very aware of in Vietnam as a company commander was that that it couldn't all be a top-down situation where the commander dictates exactly what you're going to do. You, you, you need to have a lot of trust in those young troops. and You need to listen to them. You need to be sure that They've got trust, trust in you. Um, so now to continue, uh, what what made me 
think there ought to be change. And, and I'm going to put right up at the top of the list. I'm going to sound like I'm bragging, but I felt like we and Delta Company were doing it better than anybody else. And I felt like some of that was because I listened to my troops. They'd seen a lot of combat. I was there on my second tour. Yeah, I was the old granddad at age 29. <laughs> but but still, I, I listened to them. And, uh, you know, I'm not critical. I'm not terribly critical of the way, and in fact, um, I'm not critical of the way Delta Company thought. I'm very proud of it. Now, remember, I had had that couple of years there at Camp Pendleton learning how to fight guerrillas. Mm -hmm. And so I had I, I felt a good deal of self confidence, so you have a lot of <laughs> a lot of second thoughts in, in combat too, but I felt like I knew how to do it. And when I came back I I had already been even before I took command of the company, I'd already been critical that we were a little too centralized and too set piece. Um, one of my favorite stories, going back to my 65-66 tour, I'm, I'm, I'm flying over uh, formations of Marines. I can see them below me moving, and they're getting in firefights. I can hear them on the radio, and the firefights are only erupting behind this front line. That, well, they used to call them sweeps, sweeps. Um, to go out and sweep the guerrillas uh, in a big, long line of Marines. Well, the guerrillas just waited for that big, long line to go by, and then the little firefights erupted. So that that made me want to change. There was one other thing that's important, too. Mm -hmm. um, when I came back and started to make and propose change in the Marine Corps, I thought, next stop, it's going to be the Soviet Russians. That's the next war. Are we ready? Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, having seen combat and realizing how brutal it was, I wanted to be ready because I thought it was going to happen. So that brings us to while you were an instructor at the USMC's Amphibious Warfare mm -hmm. School, you were tasked to improve the tactics curriculum. What changes did you make and which thought leaders did you tap for inspiration? Now, by the time... I went to the Amphibious Warfare School as a major just getting promoted to lieutenant colonel. I'd already been through the Amphibious Warfare School, and, you know, as a young captain and students, there are captains. But um, uh, I, I had already tried to make change um, in, on, on the way up to that. Uh, but it was when I got to be an instructor in the Amphibious Warfare School that Major General Trainer, who was then the director of Marine Corps Education at Quantico, gave me the order to go ahead and do it my way. And and so I had this enormous license to do it. And, and, and the other thing that was happening, you know, every stop along the way from lieutenant up to lieutenant colonel, uh, Again and again, I I found myself saying to myself, you should have tried harder. You should have pushed harder to do it your way. Um, and why did I think I was so smart? I, I, I don't think I was smug about it, but I read a lot about the art of war. Um, it, that, it had occurred to me way back when I was a student at the Amphibious Warfare School. As a student, and now I'm going back to, oh, 1974, 75, in, in, in that period. And I, I I felt then that we're not really studying the art of war. I, I had read about Nimitz and, and MacArthur and Bradley and Patton and how prepared they were, how scholarly. And, and back when I was at the academy, they gave us all degrees in engineering. That's what you got when you were a midshipman. I guess they thought the next war was going to be pushing buttons and throwing rockets at each other. I came back from Vietnam, and, you know, uh, it wasn't like that. Uh, we were duking it out. Uh, you know, my, my uh, good platoon leader, uh, who's written the famed Jim Webb, and I both had ancestors 
at the Battle of Kings Mountain in South Carolina in the American Revolution, and we kind of joked, hey, we're duking it out about the way our great-great-great-great-granddaddies did it at Kings Mountain. So, um, so, so when, when I got to AWS, number one, as I looked at all the lesson plans I was inheriting, many of them were the same ones that I had been taught from when I was at the amphibious warfare school. There wasn't a whole lot of change. I didn't see uh, things being done to fight the Soviets on the ground. I, I, I wasn't ready to believe that was just going to be an exchange of missiles and rockets. I'm an infantryman, and um, I, I guess it's part of being an infantryman. You become aware that we live on the ground, and um, you can drop bombs on each other, but somehow you've got to you, you've got to take the you, you, you've got to control the ground where the people live. Uh, anyway, I could go on and on on that theme, but but all these things were going on in my mind, um, and especially the one: why aren't we reading the military history? Why aren't we studying Napoleon? Why aren't we studying Gustavus Adolphus? Why, why aren't we studying Monstein and Guderian um, and, and Patton? Um, I, I had made it a point to study all those people, and I thought I'd like to share this with my students. Mm-hmm. And so this seems like the right time to talk about John Boyd. Yes, yes, it's the right time to talk about <laughs> so, John Boyd. Uh, <laughs> Because, uh, okay, here's how I met Colonel Boyd. He, he was not a household word by any means. I had never even heard of him. And I had been, you know, every step of the way trying to bring us up to date. And um, General Trainer, who unfortunately uh, passed away just a few months ago, um, I was on his staff uh, when I first reported aboard, not teaching, and I had started studying more and more. I had enrolled in a graduate program at George Washington University, and since I my baccalaureate was in engineering, I had to take some um, undergraduate courses for graduate credit, and those the first one I took was on World War II. I wrote a paper about the Battle of Tarawa, um, uh, because that was the first amphibious landing where the Japanese actually met us at the beach. Uh, Guadalcanal, we went on inland, and the battle started then. Uh, I wrote the paper, and I gave it to the general, and the, I got an A on it. It's 50 pages long. It was kind of an overkill, and the general called me in and said, I'm going to send you over and teach the captains. Um, I'm getting to Colonel Boyd here. Um um, I'll get there in a, two seconds more. So, so the general reads my paper, calls me in, and says, "Mike, I'm going to put you in charge of teaching tactics at the Amphibious Warfare School. I want you to do it your way. I've read your paper. You've got good fleet Marine Force experience in the field. Um, I, 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 I want you. We're getting criticized," he said, "especially by this congressional aide named William Lind." And and I, I want you to fix it, fix it up. So I went in, jumped in with two feet, and started making changes. And instead of lectures, I organized what I'm going to describe as a war game, where I've got the student captains in different rooms talking to each other by radio and actually playing out a war. I, each new idea I had, I'd go in and brief General Trainer, and when I briefed him on this, he said, you know what, I'm going to invite Bill Lind down here. He's been criticizing us. I think he will be impressed. Um, so I went in to start my little operation, and there was Bill Lind, and, and he introduced himself, and I said, you know what, um, I said, I... I, I know what I'm critical of, and it's this attrition kind of war, this set-piece battle. Um, it, it tends to be indecisive. I know what I'm against. I can't really define what I'm for right now. He said, well, there's somebody who has formed a, a succinct 
uh, regimen for his approach, and his name is you know, retired Air Force Colonel John Boyd. He wrote down a phone number uh, on a piece of paper, and I called Colonel Boyd, and we got acquainted over the phone. I didn't know anything much about him at the time, but uh, but as I learned about him, I, I, I first invited him down to give a lecture to the captains, and he had studied war. Um, and and I was impressed, and of course he had his his patterns of conflict theory, and he and I became fast friends. And the two of us learned from each other. Um, he would tell me about fighter tactics, and I would say, well, you know what? There's an analogy on the ground. Now, now he already aware, was aware of that, just like I was already aware there were analogies down there, too. But but our conversations would go kind of like that. You know, he, he would tell me um, his, his uh, latest thinking, and then I would say, well, you know, on the ground, here's how it was. And then we, we'd piece it together and say, well, wait, that's a parallel idea. Mm-hmm. So we both motivated each other. I, he's one of the nicest men I ever met in my life, one of the most genuine men I ever met in, the, in my life. And after that first lecture, which um, we all liked, uh, I invited him down often. Um, and uh, he and I associated on a personal basis often. So what else do you want to know about John Boyd? Well, I just want to let listeners know that if you are unfamiliar with the Boyd story, Robert Corum wrote a biography titled Boyd, the Fighter Pilot Who Changed the Art of War and said that John Boyd was one of the most important unknown men of his time. And Corum also labeled you and Boyd as Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside for the radical changes that took place in the Marine Corps. Boyd's ideas were the foundation and impetus for changes, while you as an active officer were the agent of change. You also just touched on the discussions that you would have, and the author describes the late-night phone calls and discussions you shared with him. When you look back at that time, what are some of the most valuable lessons learned about influencing reform in the USMC and the military? Yeah, yeah. And also, before I really launch into that... um, I was bent on change from the time I came back from my second tour in Vietnam. I was going to make change. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not like I met Colonel Boyd and oh, maybe we ought to change. I, I was already hard over. Um, but what did I learn from Colonel Boyd? And one, one thing, it, it reinforced my belief that we need to study the history of battle, all battle. And what specifically, of course, we've got the OODA loops. And what, what I really liked about Colonel Boyd was that he looked at things honestly. And and, and I think, yeah, I, I think maybe the message that I thought of the most was driving the enemy to, to give up and quit. Um, that's what the goal really is. It's not some kind of a body count. You know, I was already critical of that. Um, so we want to take him out of action. We want to have him so <clears throat> spent. You, you know, I, I think one of the one of the significant things that Colonel Boyd described to me was interviewing the pilot as the Air Force had him do in the course of the Korean War, um, the pilots, American and Chinese, had been shot down with the American F-86 fighting the the MiG. And the pilots he interviewed that had been shot down, by the time they were shot, almost 100%, they were flying straight and level. Mentally, they'd had it. The other pilot, the other plane outperformed them. They couldn't keep up. And... And, um, and and then, you know, so we're looking at what makes a guy give up and quit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just don't, I, I just don't want anymore. And John had another one of the, his lessons that really stuck with me is he only give up and quit when he's both isolated and penetrated. Um, that made me think of Vietnam. 
none of us were going to give up and quit on the American side. We captured a good many North Vietnamese, but most American prisoners were pilots that had been shot down and quit. Um, and you, you can go back to the Korean War, some of the massive Chinese attacks. I think we did have some American ground troops uh, surrendering. But, but we were sometimes penetrated. We got enemy within our formation sometimes. But we were never really isolated because we had that air cover. We had that friendly voice in the sky. We knew if we couldn't get it right away, we could get it sooner or later. I think that kept us going. But, but okay, now, now to, to, to focus in on the answer to the question, it was that moral dimension. I'm going to say the moral dimension of war that Boyd got me thinking about more than I had thought about before. Um, so, so let me just take a little pause on, on that break. It, it was that moral aspect uh, that was very big with John Boyd. Mm-hmm. I think I want to dive into the doctrine of maneuver, which many of the leadership yeah. under fire advisors, particularly the Marines, commonly reference. Can you share with us what the primary tenets of maneuver are? Yes. And first of all, maneuver itself is placing yourself in a position that puts you at an advantage over the enemy and the enemy at a disadvantage. Now I've outmaneuvered him. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to do that in maneuver warfare. I'm always trying to be in that place. And and when I say position, I don't mean stationary position, but I, I mean relative to the enemy where I've got an advantage. Maybe I'm sneaking through a gap and getting behind him. Maybe that's what will what will distress him the most. And in order to do that, I need to be mobile. I need to be able to change quickly. And now we come to John Boyd Doodle, you know, observation, orientation, decision, action. If I can go through that, those four phases more quickly than my enemy, I'm going to drive him crazy. The moral dimension. Eventually, he's going to give up. There's no score being kept on how many I kill. We're going to have to kill a few of them to get their attention. But so and so, I kind of started off answering your question: Is that that always be in an advantageous position? And that means you've got to you you've got to be able to to act and react rapidly. Um, and if you're going to do it rapidly enough, you need to decentralize your command and authorize your troops to make decisions on their own without waiting for orders. Let me just give you three of the concepts mm-hmm. that we were, that we, that we found to be important in teaching maneuver warfare. One of them we called surfaces and gaps. And what we meant was bypass the surfaces and go through the gaps. Don't beat your head against the strong point. Get in past him or behind him. So we had this concept of surfaces and gaps. I had about a two-hour session um, on, to, to my whole class when I would teach them that. The other one is mission orders. Um, the Germans called it Auftragstaktik. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going to tell you how to do what I'm telling you to do, um, but... I'm, I'm going to tell you what to do, what the end result is. Uh, we, we call that the commander's intent. So now here, here I'm getting you into the second concept of, of maneuver warfare, mission orders. I give you a mission. Here's what I want. I, I, that, that enemy that presently is on that hill, I want you to take him out. Now, now the enemy may not be on the hill anymore by the time I get there. In, in our former tactics, we were always taking terrain features. Hey, it's not about terrain features. It's about the enemy. I may want to be on a hill shooting down on him if, if, if I can, but the main thing is I want to be able to shoot him. I want to be able to 
disrupt his mind um, doing that. Okay, so that's number two. Now we, we, we've got uh, um, we've got the surfaces and gaps, and and we've got the mission orders. The other one that became very prominent, the other concept, and these aren't things that necessarily came from Colonel Boyd. Uh, please know, I mean, Boyd and I talked about them a lot. Um, but but the other one, that, and this one we got from the Germans, I'll admit, the nasty Germans, and I know they lost the war, but it took about the whole world to defeat them. And I, because I thought the next act was going to be our war with the Soviets, I wanted to talk to as many people as I could who had fought Russians. And there were a number of retired German officers still around who'd had that experience. So we interviewed all of them that we could. Um, and, and this is another concept um, that, that is important and central to maneuver warfare. And that's to have what we call a focus of effort that all your troops know and understand. Um, okay, when I commanded a company, I had three platoons, and I might send the third platoon forward to get behind the enemy. I might send the second platoon over on the flank to keep the first back in reserve, and and I say, okay, the third is our focus of effort, the third platoon. Everybody knows they've got to do whatever they're doing to best um, allow that that focus of effort to succeed. It might change in the course of the battle, um, but but we all want to, you know, we're, I, I've decentralized decision-making. I've told my Marines, don't wait for orders, but I bring us all on a kind of a single focus by making clear what is our focus of effort. The Germans call it their Schwerpunkt which um, if you were a German engineer, that's what you'd call what we call the center of gravity. I mean, it's literally the heavy point. And then we didn't, you know, I, I borrowed from the Germans I interviewed. We didn't copy them. There were things I think we can do better, and I think we do do better. Um, but they certainly had their ideas when it came to fighting the, the Russians. Um, and that reserve I mentioned uh I would always have part of my unit in reserve. And, and, and this is another tenet of maneuver warfare is to keep a strong reserve and use that to reinforce success, not to reinforce failure. Don't send in your reserves because somebody's in trouble. Do your best to get him out of trouble, maybe some extra fires, maybe some air cover. But, um, but, but when you commit that reserve, you want to be, that's where you're winning. You want to be that the the final blow. I got a lot of that from studying Napoleon. Uh, as long ago as he was, he, he was good at, at, at fight until he got the water. But, but um, getting into his mind was important. But but that's generally maneuver warfare. You know, we think of a faster moving, more decentralized form of fighting. That doesn't mean we can't even ever stop and move slow. Sometimes we have to, you know, and I'm thinking of John Boyd again when he talked about air to air, you know, as you like. Um, when, um, when you're up there and flying uh, in a dogfight one on one, you don't want to be out in front. If you're out in front and he's behind you, that's when you're getting shot down. Thank you for that response and thorough explanation. My understanding is that the publication of FM, FM1 Warfighting, which is now available online for free at this time, was a significant event in the USMC. Can you explain why and if there was any resistance um, and which USMC commandant signed off on it? Okay, and that was General Al Gray, Alfred M. Gray, signed off on it. Um, was there any controversy? You better believe. There were those in favor and those not in favor um, of the change. Change is hard for people to accept. Um, people get set in their ways. I could go on and on why I think it's so important that we be receptive to it now in this day and age in the United States Marine Corps. Um, General Gray signed off on it because I was 
my name <laughs> kind of got up on the skyline. I was well known as a guy making change. I know there were people trying to stop it. They wanted, well, they they wanted to stick to the tried and true. Um, I remember that phrase. Um, in fact, I think part of it is in Quorum's book you were talking about. Um, I try to be a gentleman, and I think I'm a fairly even-tempered kind of guy. But General Gray sent a number of his generals down to talk about the changes. This is before he signed. It was before he signed the new FMFM, but he was thinking about it, being briefed on it. And in the discussion, I remember one of the anti, you know, they didn't go on record as being anti-General Gray, but they were out there. And one of them in this kind of roundtable discussion and the reason I thought for a minute I was a lieutenant colonel, I was about the junior guy there. Um, uh, but the general used the phrase tried and true. Why don't we stick to the tried and true? I said, the tried and true, sir? You mean like Vietnam, where our command posts were so set and sedentary that they couldn't move? That's and then he said something. He was bigger than I was. And since he said something, I decided I was going to say something only a little louder. And he decided to get a little louder. And I got a little louder. We were nose to nose, two star generals. Some people told me that's why I never made general. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but in answer to your question, yes. Uh, there were people who were adverse to it, and um, and this is as I say that argument started before before um, General Gray um, signed the book, um, and it was even though he was coming to the Marine Corps, I'm going to say it was a courageous act for him to sign it because he knew there were adversaries out there. And a lot of them, for various political reasons, it would probably be beyond the scope of this interview. But um, it, it took guts to sign it, and that's one of the reasons I'm going to kind of fast forward. I have a lot of admiration for the young crew, like Chuck, mm-hmm. because when he became commandant, he was really tough. Um, I, I think he cemented our our adoption of maneuver warfare. So just eight months earlier than the 30-year career limit for colonels, you received a letter ejecting you from the Marines after all this, after all the things that we've covered. This forced retirement was viewed by many, including Bill Lind and Jim Webb, as a case where, quote, the message is that there is no room in the Marine Corps for mavericks of any kind and intellectual mavericks are the worst kind, end quote. So basically your forced retirement was seen as an object lesson. What are your feelings on this today? And do you feel the subject of careerism is still relevant in the military? Well, I, I think the subject of careerism is relevant and always will be, even though I, especially General Gray, I think, took steps to suppress it. But it depends on how how people think. I mean, careerism certainly holds us back uh, when, whenever, whenever it rears its ugly head. Um, the, the, war, the, the mission isn't to get promoted. The mission is to win the war. And sometimes you have to take career risks in order to do that. Um, I felt that it was worth the risk. I still feel it was worth the risk. It was painful to me to leave the Corps. Of course, that was my family. Mm -hmm. That was my my purpose. Um, But at the same time, I... Well, I I like to say... I I, I like to say this, to be a little charitable here. 
Yeah, I had adversaries. I had that one nose-to-nose argument. And I had (laughs) probably a bunch of little arguments. I like to think that those who argued with me in their own way believed that they were doing what was best for the core. And that's why I hold no bitterness towards anybody. It, it was tough becoming a civilian. Uh, I, I, I used to dream about being back in uniform. It was a recurring dream, and, and, and I'd wake up devastated that it, that it wasn't true. I, um, it had just become so much a part of my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but but I think that's something on the, we can all learn from. You, you, it, what are we in it for? And and maybe I, I think this is still relevant to the answer to your question. And it's one of the reasons I feel especially strongly right now. See, when I left the Marine Corps, I wanted to really leave. I didn't want to be a hanger around guy. Now, now I'm kind of back into it um, in, a, in a, another way, um, you, you know, as a civilian, as a retired Marine. But but I, I just think it's especially important now that, that the Marine Corps open itself up to continue keeping up and improving because that's that's what we are when we say united states marine corps oh okay uh how many birthday balls have i been you know the 10th of november 1775 i know that's when the first corps of marines was founded by the continental congress okay good good good, good. but the marine corps that we know this unique armed service it's like none other in the world with its own air wing its own tanks and artillery and we still say every Marine or rifleman. That was really born in about 1919. I know there was a lot of thinking going on in the Marine Corps in World War One. Um, uh, the number of college men who went and signed up um, back then was impressive. But we had a maverick. We had a maverick. His name was Pete Ellis, Major U.S. Marine Corps from the state of Kansas. It was he who went to General John A. Lejeune as early as 1919 and said, we're going to have to fight the Japanese. We better get ready. And the Marines did. Um, we changed everything. Like my time, in a way. Um, everybody's talking about ship to shore. People are saying, no, you can't do it anymore. The disastrous Gallipoli landing in 1916 showed that. Amphibious officer dead. We worked and worked and changed, and starting in 1942 when we hit Guadalcanal, we began to execute the war we had planned for ever since 1919. So, um, you know, for 40 years. So that was the Marine Corps. Now, we continued to lead the way because of our intellectual development, the landing at Incheon, Korea, uh, that was certainly innovative and revolutionary and everything else. You've got to thank Doug MacArthur for the strategic outlook with the Marines for executing it. Then we make it all the way up to the Yalu before the Chinese come in. And then after the Chinese have come and... uh, and we've gone back to where we started at the 38th parallel. It kind of turns into a war, a linear war for ground. And we get into Vietnam, and I was one of the lucky few to be in Bruce Krulak's school, you know, as an instructor. But uh, the, the big mistake, I, I wrote a Gazette, I published an article in the Gazette not too long ago saying, uh, the big mistake we made back in 1965 when we started sending Marines over is 
we sent the whole school over, um, instructors and all, and, and the, you know, many of the Marines that went initially had never had this uh, specialized, you know, how do you fight gorillas? Uh, so I, I think we could have and should have been more ready for the new kind of war that was thrust upon us. What's coming next? Well, that's what we all need to be asking ourselves and studying about and, and figuring out about. And there are a lot of good people out there doing that. But um, if we're going to stay the U.S. Marine Corps, we need to be the first to fight. We need to be at that cutting edge. How do we get ashore now? Things have changed. So, so that's what I, what I say. The, the, the change is still um, important and, and it's got to go on. Also, in terms of what's next, in recent years, some of your former Marines and amphibious warfare students, such as retired Lieutenant Colonel Bob Wyman, have become advocates for combat veterans who they believe are victims of strategic legalism, a form of legalism they define as the use of laws or legal arguments to further larger political and policy objectives, irrespective of the facts or laws Where do you stand on this issue regarding the military's alleged abuse of legal and administrative procedure, and what do you think the implications might be in future conflicts? Okay, I'm going to start by telling a little story. And first, uh, God bless Bob Wyman. He was one of those students at Amphibious Warfare School. He was one of my one of my guys when I was uh, doing that for general training. But let me tell you a quick story, and it will tell you where I stand. Um, if you still have questions after I tell you this, um, go ahead and ask. But when I commanded Delta Company, and we get into 69, now there are meetings in Paris. Uh, we're talking about how to bring this thing to a close. You know, Americans sitting down at the table with um, North Vietnamese. And now and again, there would be a kind of a truce, um, quasi-truce, let's call it. And on the tactical radio that we hopped around um, would come um, order, don't fire unless fired upon. Um, We're looking at the possibility of, of negotiating a peace. Now, what I knew as company commander is anything that got on that tactical radio, everybody would hear. And when I heard something about they wanted me to send patrols out with, with orders not to fire unless they're taken under fire, I would, my first act would be to say, platoon leaders up. That means, lieutenants, come on, come on up. The skipper's got something for you. All right. I know what you may have heard on the radio. I want to reinforce. When you go out on patrol, I want a full magazine of ammunition. I want a round in the chamber. And if you see somebody that looks, thinks, or smells like a bad guy, you shoot first. I wanted those kids to get home and their moms and dads. That's where I stand. I I, I think that's got to be the policy. We send young men into combat. It's dangerous. It's dangerous on many, many dimensions, physical, mental, emotional, everything else. Sure, we we are going to be Americans. Um, you, you know, I used to get some questions from my Marines there. I can remember one in particular when um, we had some captured North Vietnamese, and one of them was bleeding badly, and I was evacuating my Marines, and I put this wounded North Vietnamese guy on a helicopter, and one of my Marines said, Skipper, we're trying to kill these people. Why are you doing that? My reply, we're the Americans. If we start behaving like the other guy, uh, what are we fighting for? What I mean is if uh, we're the Americans, and kind of to elaborate, you know, if somebody commits a real atrocity, yeah, we, we, we court-martial him. We, we have, we will, we should. Um, I don't think any of the people that Bob Wyman is helping and protecting committed atrocities. Um, you know, that that's a big difference. Uh, between some of the enemies we fight, uh, namely the way the North Vietnamese were behaving. Um, I, I won't even mention on this podcast some of the things they did to my people that they uh, uh, be, be, that they captured before they killed them. My people didn't surrender. They, they got physically 
killed, but they, some of them got tortured first. Um, we we do court-martial people who do things like that, and it's not even a fine line. It's a clear and obvious line. But, uh, no, the people, Bob Wyman is doing good work, and uh, we, we need him. We need guys like that. Does that help? Yeah, so switching gears now from the battlefield to ballet. Following yeah. <laughs> following your retirement in 1992, you founded mm-hmm. the Bozov Ballet Theater in Maine. Can you give us right. a brief summary of how and why you started that? Well, I started it for two people, let me say. I had already kind of, I, I, I already appreciated the art form, let me say. But there were two people in my life that energized me. One of them was a little girl, my daughter, who was taking ballet. And we I uprooted her from the Washington, D.C. area and got her up here in, in the wilds of, of Maine. <laughs> it became evident after a while that there wasn't the kind of instruction of the quality she'd been getting. So she was one of the people I did it for. The other was the Russian whom I brought over and got him a green card to, to teach. And his name was Andrei Basov. And, uh, you know, when, when I came back from my second tour in Vietnam, I was very serious. We've got to get ready for the Russians. And it was all the Russians, the Russians. I grew up. I, I remember asking my dad after he was back from World War II, Dad, who's the next war going to be with? The Russians. I remember the school drills with the uh, hide under the desk if the mushroom cloud comes and all that. You know, Russians were scary people. And now I met one. And he's a ballet dancer. He's a tough guy. He's a manly guy. And he's a Russian. You know, and I think of that famous quote of Charles de Gaulle the first time he was in a public setting that involved Germans, he said before it was our duty to be enemies. Now it is our privilege to be friends. And the fact that this Russian had come here with enormous pride in his culture, and now he's appreciating freedom and telling me uh, how how different and how wonderful it is. Uh, it, it, I, I just thought, how great. I, I want him and his family and generations down to talk about coming to America and what a wonderful thing that was. So, so I, I got kind of hooked on that emotionally, too. I wanted to do everything I could. To, to build this for him. But as I did it, and even, you know, ballet is telling a story without words. There, there are a few analogies to ballet and what we did in the core. And I, I could go way into more depth than I'm doing now. But, but without words, you don't need a lot of words in combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, actions speak louder than words. And um, overcoming fear. Um, we take these high school freshmen, and most of them are female, um, and put them on stage. That's a scary event for some of them. And I used to give them uh, the same little talk I used to give my Marines when we were in training. You know, how do you, how do you drop and stroll and how do you give cover to your buddy and all this? And what... I, I'm sure I'm not the first one to say it, but I'm not sure I heard it somebody else said it. So the habits that you form in peacetime and exercises are what you're going to do when you're in combat. There, there's a mythical thought that maybe once somebody is shooting at me, then I'll do the right thing. Then I'll take cover. I'll cover my buddies and all that because it's going to be the real thing. No, you won't. When you're scared half out of your mind, you're going to revert back to what you're used to. And that's the same thing when you go on stage for the first time, Miss Ballerina. You're going to have to overcome your fears, but you're still going to be scared. And you're going to do what Andre taught you to do in the studio. Mm-hmm. You may not think so, but that's, um, you know, or you're going to do what you did in the studio 
when Andre was trying to teach you, one or the other. So, so we had those little analogies, and then I guess the other one that used to strike me, um, I remember the feeling, you know, when you send the unit into the attack, and, and I like to be there in the attack with them, I, I tried never to be a guy that commanded from the rear, but, but um, let's say I want the first platoon down in that um, valley there, okay, um, uh, shove off, good luck. Once he crosses that line of departure, he's in the attack. God help us. Uh, I hope he does what he's uh, trained to do. And uh, and I hope they all do what they're trained to do. And, and you get that same feeling when you put your corps de ballet on stage, you know. <laughs> okay, we worked with you guys. But once they get on stage, anything can happen. And it does. You know, somebody, part of his costume falls off. It's, Shoot, uh, you know, and, and you've got to cover, or you fall down. And and one thing I noticed about Andre as a teacher, nobody ever got scolded for falling down, because you've got to take a risk. You've got to take a risk, and if you're not willing to take a risk, there won't be any high, lofty jump, grand jeté, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you've got to be a risk taker, and 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 war is the same. That's okay. a great that's a great perspective. My final question for you today before we wrap up. In the years following John Boyd's death, you and several other of Colonel Boyd's colleagues gather each year in Pittsfield, Maine for the C5 conference, which stands for Citizens Congress for Courage, Character and Country. The conference is a non-political exchange of ideas designed to capture and document those ideas that might be of value to the US military in America. Even after so many decades of service, you continue to actively lead efforts to improve the military in America. Why is that? And what do you see as being our greatest leadership hurdle in society today? Well, why? Uh, it's one of the things, you know, um, that I remember so much about when General Gray signed that book. That didn't mean he was done. Uh, we, and, and I, I know uh, Colonel Boyd and I talked about that afterwards, after he signed it. Uh, you've got to just keep, you, you, you've got to keep working on it because people are going to resort to their old habits. And I think, I'm, I'm going to put it at the top of the list, it may take some thinking about it. I'm going to say cowardice or lack of bravery, lack of courage, because it takes some courage to speak your mind. You might not get promoted. You might not make everybody happy. You might find yourself at loggerheads with somebody that whose opinion you valued. And I think whether it's in the military or in politics or in going to school, that having the courage of our convictions is precious. And when you have the opposite, what's the opposite of courage? I guess it's cowardice. You know, when I start saying something I don't really believe, I'm lying. And and I think cowardice and dishonesty are right up there at the tip top of of our biggest problem. And it comes and goes. It gets worse in periods. It gets better in periods. I, I think having a free country where we all have the freedom to say what we think, we don't have a very good excuse for not not saying what we really believe. But alarmingly, few people do say what they really believe. And I, I just think we need to grow up that way. You know, um, John Boyd had another phrase he used to use again and again, and I, I like to use it too, God bless him. Let the fur fly. If I've got a new idea... Okay, let's get together. Let's argue. Let the fur fly. Maybe I'm wrong. I want to hear your idea and yours and yours and yours. 
don't want to be afraid of them. But but I think those things, you know, an unwillingness to seek out dishonesty and and lack of courage, uh, those those are what hold us back. Well, Colonel, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I'm completely saturated with everything that we discussed, and I think we've, we just scratched the surface. So thank you so much for your service, and I hope that I actually know that the listeners will take away some really valuable lessons from what you shared with us today. So thank you again. All right. Well, you're very welcome, and it was my honor and my pleasure. <laughs> Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF. More at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.